to Queer by Birth, Proud by Choice. I am your host, Jake Federowski. My pronouns are they, them, and I navigate the world as a white, genderqueer individual. This week, I am thrilled to share with you my conversation with Brock McGillis, the first male professional hockey player to come out as gay. Since retiring, Brock has become an advocate and sought-after speaker whose work focuses on educating inside and outside of the queer community on topics such as inclusivity, mental illness, and sexuality, with a specific focus on shifting language. Please note that when this conversation was recorded, my non-binary identity was not quite ready to be shared with the world. Therefore, I identified as a cisgender male and used he-him pronouns. This is proof that one's journey of self-discovery never ends. Without further ado, Brock McGillis. Hello. Hey. Um, Would you like to uh, just start us off with uh, sharing your pronouns and um, letting me know if I missed anything in my intro? (laughs) No, I think you got pretty much everything. My pronouns are he-him, his, and... um public speaker, advocate, activist, whatever. Everyone has a different uh, term they want to use. Uh, I have a, a series with uh, World of Wonder and RuPaul's Drag Race. So there's that. And yeah, everything else is right on. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to start uh, with just a little like intro of where are we coming from today? Um, you know, do you have anything on your mind uh, this week, this month? Anything that may be distracting you or um, that you're thinking about, um, pondering, etc.? You know, any anything that we should know that you're bringing to the conversation today? Um, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about intersections of identities. And, and I think uh, you touched on something in your opening that resonates me is that um with me rather is you know the idea of being a cis white gay man and the privilege that that gives us within you know the queer space and i think it's important that we all recognize it and that we use it for good You know, um, I had a conversation with somebody, professional hockey player who's Republican, who um, happens to have a queer sibling. And I used the term privilege and it was through text. And I got this like massive response. Don't talk to me about privilege, blah, 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 blah. Like, why should I feel guilty for being white, blah, blah, blah. I said, whoa, you don't know what privilege means. You're hearing talking points from Fox News and, and, you know, like it's, you know, what you do with your privilege that matters. It's not the fact that you have it. It's it's recognizing you have it and then what you do with it. Currently, in, in, until we get to the point of equity in society, which I think we're still a long way from. So it's it's a matter of taking that privilege and, and using it to make the world a little more equitable and make spaces better for other people. And as, you know, gay men is recognizing there's a lot of privilege with that within our community and sometimes I think we have a tendency to not recognize it and also not use it to uplift the rest of the community. Sure. Even just within the queer community, right? There's, there's so many different individuals and like minority groups within that minority group. Right. And 
how do um, how do those intersect, right? You know, our, our trans sisters and brothers and siblings and, um, you know, our, our lesbian friends and all, like, how does all of that intersect, you know, and how, what types of privilege does society kind of assign to the different identifiers, right? With the title of the, the show being Queer by Birth, Proud by Choice, my goal is to kind of look at this idea of pride and to kind of focus in on what does pride mean? What does it mean to, f- to feel proud? How do you use that, you know, as you go about your work um, or, you know, your daily life? So I wanted to start with, if you wouldn't mind sharing what pride might mean to you, you know, and how does it feel to be proud within, you know, your uh, daily interactions and whatnot? By the first term pride, do you mean like inner pride or or like being proud or like the idea of the concept of pride in terms of like queer space or like pride festivals and maybe a little bit of both? I think maybe start with the the inner pride. Right. um, And then we can kind of work towards the the, the other one. Sure. I I say something every every time I do an interview uh, and, and I make sure I say it, especially on like mainstream in mainstream media is that I love being a gay man. Um, and I say that intentionally and people used to ask me, why do you say that? Like, I don't hear straight people saying I love being straight and well, they kind of, you know, do every day. The world is built for them, so they don't have to, but growing up, I never heard anyone say that. And our struggle, our oppression, a lot of the time there, there is, you know, overt oppression that, that comes from other people. But a lot of our, our struggle is internalized. It's inside because we're not out. And, and then we're beating ourselves up because we don't think that it's okay to be gay. We've never heard anyone say anything positive about it. Most of the time, society, especially in sport culture, which I grew up in, uses a lot of homonegative language. So I never had that positive reinforcement of gay being not only okay, but a good thing. So, so to me, that's what being proud is, is recognizing that, you know, it's a good thing. And it's not this, you know, you're, you're not less than, you're not anything. It, I, I see the world differently through a gay lens than I would as a straight person my experiences are different as a gay man than straight people's experiences. And it's pretty phenomenal. I absolutely love queer culture and I absolutely love a queer space, like a gay bar or a queer bar. There's just so many cool things and it's so, you know, subversive in senses that, that are so cool. But, um, it took a while to get to that point of being proud and loving being a gay man. Uh, that's not like a, a first step. Like, like I don't think we just come out and then all of a sudden we're like, poof, I love myself. You know what I mean? That, that, that sense of pride takes a while. Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost like two separate things. And that's what I've come to kind of realize, right. Is that there is that coming out process where, to me is more kind of like an outward facing thing and more about how others are viewing you or yourself. And the pride part comes in is more of like, 
you're finally kind of telling yourself this authentic gay being or this authentic queer self, you know, I want to celebrate that. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's so important to kind of separate the two. And even within that, I think there's stages of that uh, to go from acceptance of yourself to loving yourself. There's, there's, you know, a stage in there too, where, where you go, okay, this is who I am and you accept it. But it takes a while after that because of all the traumas or the the reinforcements to actually love being yourself. And I think in, in my mind, that leads to a lot of the um, shit we see in the community where, you know, whether it's addiction or numbing with diff- in different ways, it's it's that stage between accepting yourself and then getting to the point that you absolutely 100% love yourself and i think at that point when you're if you're still coming out to people it's significantly easier because you don't give a shit what anyone thinks when you love yourself unconditionally you don't care what anyone else thinks of you because it doesn't matter as long as what you think of yourself is good and you know who you are you're less likely in my opinion to care about what others think and you won't hold their opinion and 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 that outward facing that you're talking about i don't i i think that's just somebody who hasn't even accepted themselves yet if you're outward facing and you're seeking acceptance from others it means you're creating a hierarchy where heterosexuals are above you i don't think anyone can accept us i don't believe in that i think you're the only one who can accept you And if you're seeking acceptance from others, you haven't learned to love yourself yet. You haven't fully accepted yourself and gone to the point that you love yourself. You know, I've I've heard you in some past interviews talk about that, that word of acceptance, right? I hate it. (laughs) And exactly. I love that, you know, that that idea of like only you can accept yourself. And that that idea of self-acceptance is really what we're kind of focusing on, right? So I wonder with that in mind, do you have a moment that you remember that you first felt proud of your or in and of your queer body that did you have that moment of self-acceptance? I think it happened in a lot of stages. I think there, there wasn't, there, there was many incremental moments along the way, not necessarily one singular. I think there were so many different things that happened. I mean, uh, I was struggling I I was in the hockey world. I was playing hockey and and I didn't think I could be myself and play the sport I love and my identity was wrapped around being a hockey player because you know hockey um from a very young age I m- most of the attention I got in in society or in my personal life came from hockey. You know, you'd see people and they'd be like how's hockey going or uh, people would ask, I, I mean, I was 17, 18 years old and signing autographs, walking through malls, like, like, you know, you're, you're treated, I, I equate being uh, through your teenage years as an elite level athlete, specifically hockey in Canada, to being like an Instagram influencer or YouTuber, where you have this little bit of fame, but you're not like Brad Pitt, you know, where you're not accessible to the public, you're, you're like, you know, you're, you're still somebody's neighbor and you're still like going outside every day and engaging with other people. So 
Um, the, the homonegative language that I heard daily in the locker room made me feel as if I couldn't be myself and play the sport I love. And I had invested so much of my time and my identity was so much wrapped around hockey that I just resented being gay and suppressed it and dated women and wouldn't even think about the idea of being gay, let alone accept who I was and then love myself. But um, late uh, in my career, I was playing university hockey in Montreal and taking a step back from professional hockey. And um, I was watching a hockey game. This young guy was between periods was talking about following in his father's footsteps and making the NHL as a general manager. And then he said, and I'm gay. And I went, my ears perked up, my head whipped around, looked at the TV. And I said, what? Like, I've never heard that. The only time I've heard that in hockey is when somebody was calling another player gay. And this was Brendan Burke, the son of Brian Burke, who at the time was running the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and whatnot. And we, I reached out to him and we became friends. And he was one of the first people I came out to. In that, I, I bonded and somebody understood the duality I had of being this, you know, in this hyper-masculine macho world and, and also being a gay man, struggling with my, you know, to, to be me. And at that point I'd already accepted it in a sense where I was like, okay, I'm gay and I'm dating men by the time I had met Brendan and I had been in a three year relationship closeted and it sort of eased things. Uh, there was, you know, like having somebody to talk to who understood what I went through and sort of, it was humanizing for me. And I think between that and, and there was another step early on, I used to drive around at night. I had Sirius XM radio in my vehicle. <laughs> so I drive around at night and back in the day, there used to be a station called OutQ. Oh, and right. it was a, a queer um, radio station on Sirius XM. And I used to listen to this show called Derek and Romaine. I would listen to it every night. Like I would just drive around for hours. And it was my only link or feeling of having community, which I think is so critical as human beings. We, we want community and we also want to be a part of something and, and you know, uh, identify with other people. And we need that sense of, you know, we, like we're all struggling right now in society because COVID and we can't have any sense of community. We're all isolated. So that sense of community, listening to their show and having their callers call in and hearing them and finding them a bit relatable. And I reached out to them and they were so incredibly sweet and kind. Like I still have a relationship with them today and it's over 10 years ago. They still have their show, Derek and Romaine. And Derek is a gay man. He's written movies. He's worked in television. And uh, he, I think he wrote Hurricane Bianca too like Bianca oh. Del Rio's movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's friends with, like, ton of, like he, he's got, he's very well connected in New York and and uh, really smart guy and really funny and fun. And then Romaine is um, a lesbian who has a really interesting story. She was best friends with Matthew Shepard. Oh, wow. So in, in the Laramie Project, the movie, uh, Christina Ricci plays her. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. 
Yep. So she came up, she was one of the people who came up with the angel wings at the, the funeral and at the courthouse um, when the Westboro Baptist Church were protesting. And she's been an international activist uh, for the community. And these were two people I saw myself in both in different ways. And then I also had this friend and in Brendan. And then Brendan, uh, I remember one day we were texting and he said to me, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family like I am to mine. And I actually think having those two in my life, Derek and Romaine, led to me reaching out to Brendan because I reached out to them. And we became like, I would email with them, text with them, and we formed a friendship with Brendan. I, I felt more comfortable because I saw that it worked and, and that, you know, people were receptive and open to talking with me. And we talked every day. And then one day he, he sent me a message and said, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family like I am to mine. And I ignored it. And then that ended up being the last thing he ever said to me. Two days later, he passed away in a car accident. Oh, wow. And then that, the next day, I sat my brother down and told him. I felt like the only thing I could do in that moment was honor what he had said to me. And then I told my parents and I told my friends and family, anyone who wasn't involved in hockey, but I still wasn't comfortable coming on the hockey space. And so that's where I, I say it was, you know, these incremental things that sort of led me through the acceptance process. Um, dating somebody for three years in the closet pushed me further out. Not having anyone in my life to talk to about a breakup led me to driving around listening to this, you know, show. And then the show, becoming friends with the hosts, made me feel more confident to reach out to Brendan. And then Brendan's passing pushed me to tell people in my life. And then later on, as I started, you know, becoming more comfortable and, and recognizing that a lot of my fears outside of hockey of uh, looking for acceptance and whatnot from others were internal things that weren't factual at that point, because like, my, I knew my family would be accepting or inclusive or supportive of me, but I, I sought out acceptance in a sense, and I feared not being accepted. And that's probably why I hate those terms. And then eventually, after telling them, years later, I came out in hockey. And uh, there was a few reasons for that. I came out publicly to the world at that point. People started finding out. And I was at that point, I was retired and I was working with athletes and I was working about a hundred athletes a day, uh, young hockey players. And they started, they, I found out that they knew through a hockey mom who wanted to set me up on a date with a guy. And I was nervous and apprehensive and scared. And then, then I recognized, wait, they all know and they choose to work with me and it's kind of cool. And I started to see shifts in them. And that made me realize that shifts could happen on bigger levels in our society. And then shortly after that, when people started finding out, a hockey association blackballed me. And then my dad bumped into the president of the association and he said, is it because Brock's gay? Because I had coached and played in that association. I had volunteered with like eight teams a year helping them out. And then my business that worked with athletes, they wouldn't let work with their athletes in season. And I was the only one not allowed. And I was the only one volunteering my time for them. 
And the president said, what? I had no idea, even though that hockey mom had told me people knew. He went and called the coaches whose teams I was helping out and volunteering my time with, and I got kicked off staffs. Um, and this wasn't that long ago. This is 2015. So all the fears of the hockey world were starting to come true, you know, and, and I really was worried and, and struggled. Like I, I was bedridden for months because I felt so low. Like I was incredibly depressed and I was struggling with who I was and, and uh, because I was seeking acceptance. And then slowly but surely, I started to go, no, I, I, I don't need it. I don't need that. Like, that's, that's focusing on the wrong thing. I'm not focusing on me. And I'm not focusing on my journey. And I'm not focusing on what I can control. So I did that. And then eventually, I came up publicly. And those were partially the reasons. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I was, I was listening as I was kind of preparing for this whole series and whatnot, I was listening to some different TED Talks and I, I came across this talk with Tandy Newton and the title of the talk was called Embracing Otherness, Embracing Myself. And one of the things that really stuck with me from that talk was she said something along the lines of the self-struggle for that authenticity and oneness will never end unless it's connected to its creator. Right. So that that authentic, you're not going to reach that that authentic self or that that oneness unless that process is connected to uh, the creator, the self. Right. And I was I was listening to one of the podcasts that you were interviewed on and you were talking a little bit or you had recommended The Velvet Rage, which is one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that book is focused on flipping the narrative from seeking the validation from others. Right. And turning that more inward and, um, you know, focusing on the self-acceptance, right? You can't rely on the validation of others. Uh, you have to focus more on that acceptance yourself. It's so important, especially as you make that transition from, you know, because because pride in, in, in and of itself is kind of the antidote to shame, right? You've, you've got, you're in that state of shame. And then as you move through that transition of acceptance, you kind of then end up at pride, which I feel like as you're talking about these different moments, like those are all those moments of accepting yourself and accepting yourself within your community to finally kind of arrive at this proud moment. Does any of that kind of resonate? <laughs> yeah, I think the outward seeking stuff uh, definitely does. And I think it, it resonates in our community a lot. Not even with straight people, but even as, as queer people amongst queer people, you know what I mean? There, there's a big need for, I, I think a lot of people seek instant gratification. And, and I think that comes from a lack of looking inward and dealing uh, my, my show with world of wonders called this is shit. And it's myself and Mrs. Kasha Davis from season seven. And you know, I've suffered from depression, anxiety, and different things, and and being closeted in like this hyper masculine world. And Miss Kasha Davis has had some anxiety stuff, and and is a recovering. You know, has been sober for six or seven years, and was an alcoholic, and and different things. And uh, the, the premise is, and and it came from something on the secret. I, I remember. Um, I'd read it before, but then I randomly one day watched the the movie of it on Netflix, and and one of the people said something along the lines of, 
when we're struggling with something, we think we're the only ones in the world struggling and we're really not that special. And, and that really resonated with me because our, you know, I think there's, there's two things that maybe more things, but two things that come to mind that people do when they're struggling, they either numb it or they wallow in it. You know what I mean? And, and they think they're the only ones in the world struggling. So they're, they, they, they kind of sit in it and, and get, you know, really depressed. And, and I think we all have those moments where our problems are the worst problems. And then there's the other side when it's this long-term thing of, you know, finding acceptance and love of yourself that um, people try to avoid dealing with it. So they numb. And I think it's through instant gratification. I think that's why there's, so much addiction and substance abuse and you know whether it's um numbing with sex numbing you know and and using grinder as a numbing tool for that instant gratification have somebody for that night instead of saying what's the root cause of me not needing needing that in that moment or with drugs or with alcohol or with food or you name it and and these are all things I've done, so I'm, there's no judgment towards. <laughs> no, they are like yeah. I'm not judging anyone. I'm yeah. just you know observing what I've seen from myself, from friends, from other community members, from people I've dated. Like where I've been, like in, in it's crazy that I've been with to date more women than men in my life, but I've been cheated on more by gay men than uh than I have with women and and it, it's but I think a lot of it stems from that need for instant gratification we get that little bit of attention we want more we need that fix we need that fix in that moment to feel good but the problem with that fix is it goes away because it it's it's not you know it we haven't worked on ourselves inwardly as you're you're talking it's outward facing so th- that fix leaves that guy you hooked up with leaves, you know, that booze when it's done, well, now you're going to feel it. You're going to feel your stuff plus the booze. It doesn't matter what it is. We're going to feel those things. And if we just dealt with our shit, and I know that's an oversimplification of something that's, you know, there's a lot of trauma in that and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And it's not that easy. And, and it's, emotional and it's tough and then there's you know instances where people don't have uh accessible tools and therapy and it's not you know affordable and and different things but the the more we deal with it and even as community members the more we support one another and let people deal with their shit and and just listen or you know if people if you've gone through something and somebody else goes through something similar and off like you can say do you want some advice you know having and and not just you know coming at them with the advice because but but you know offering to share what works for you and the more we do that as a community the more we will uplift everyone and everyone will feel better and we can all be more inward facing but together sure sure it's 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 showing showing the support through just being there right and and offering that assistance 
should that person need it? Or, you know, should they feel lost and not know who to reach out to just by you saying, by offering that and extending a hand can be so important. I, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and go back to when you were talking about, or when I'd asked you about defining pride, right? And we've kind of talked about the the inward feeling of pride, but I'd like to kind of talk about pride as it relates to, you know, pride parades and more specifically with within the hockey world that we're seeing more recently are these pride nights, right? And, you know, just kind of look at, you know, you've, you've talked a little bit about like the, per, the performative allyship and um, that really superficial level that kind of comes with these type of events. But how do we, you know, how do we avoid these pride nights or these pride parades becoming just another way for companies or sports teams or whatever it may be, but just trying to draw fans in and to make money and to, you know, capitalize off of that? I think it's too late. I, I think we've seen no, really. Like uh, I think we've seen that with Pride in general. Yeah. Like, go to a Pride parade, and and what do you see? It, lots it's, of partying, lots of drinking, <laughs> booze, drugs, sex, and corporations. Yeah, that's all it is. Like that's that's really it. I I bet you can walk through every parade in in and every major Pride event in. North America, and most of the people can tell you five defining moment, moments in uh, North American queer history. I bet you could walk around as gay men and go up to other gay men and say, what's the Mattachine Society? And they would have wow. no damn clue. Yep, it'd go right over their head. <laughs> uh, uh, they'll, they'll reference Stonewall. Sure. And then, yeah, next. And, and why did Stonewall exist? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, like it, it, it's, there, there's this missing element of what pride was about and it's like from let's let's just look at stonewall stonewall happened because queer people were being arrested and harassed by police and and didn't have rights in america but it's not the only way and it wasn't the only thing like it was radical and and it was violent a lot of things that were radical weren't violent. And I think that's another element that people kind of miss too, is they're like, we have to go straight to violent radicalism in order to evoke change. And it's like, well, there's, there's times for that, but there's, there's a balance of a lot of things that are required, but I think people have lost the meaning. And that comes from uh, uh, my opinion is gay men, not recognizing that they've, they've received a set, uh, a minuscule amount of equality. We haven't reached equity and we haven't even reached full equality as, as gay men in, in society. But because we have that and, and we have enough privilege that we, we have opportunities for higher education, we have opportunities for well-paying jobs to go on trips, to party, to do things. We've left out the people who haven't and there was a time when we didn't have that and we've lost our way and we've kind of, you know, kind of wiped our hands of everyone else. And that's what pride festivals have become. And to me, that's not okay. And then now take it a step further is, is looking at sport where men's sport, especially where there, there is no space for a queer person. There is no space for a gay man. And now either front offices or people who work on the corporate side of a sports organization, because there's a distinction between the corporation 
and sport culture. Corporate culture is one side of it, right? So that's the front office, that's the marketing team, the advertisers. There may be queer people there who are openly queer. But in the locker room, nobody's openly queer on the men's side of team sport. And that's because it's not a safe space. The language, the behaviors are homophobic and heterosexist. So then having events where you haven't shifted your culture and your fan culture is as bad, you know, the culture of sport hasn't evolved. Sure, the corporate culture has, perhaps, but the the sport culture hasn't. And then having these nights pink washes the issue. I, I've referred to them as having the parade before winning the championship. You haven't done a thing to shift your culture, yet you're having these events to celebrate. Well, am I allowed to swear on here? Yeah, go for it. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> well, then you've missed the whole fucking point of pride. Yep. Pride was a protest. Mm-hmm. Pride in New York City, Stonewall, that first year, you know, was was a riot. And then led to uh, a protest for equality and and for rights and you know and then in the 80s became about the aids hiv aids epidemic and and still raids like bathhouse raids in canada and toronto and different places and and there's so much that pride was about and should still be about i mean our trans siblings still need our support and need to be uplifted we still have minority people like racial minorities who are not at you know there's still overt racism in our community let alone what's going on in society with the anti-black racism that's existing in society right now there's so much that needs to come to the forefront and and we're concerned about you know which dj and drag queen's going to be at an event and and just you know, partying. I refuse to walk in crates because they're bullshit. I, I walked in one. I've walked in one. Montreal Pride in 2019. A corporation that I thought I was going to be doing some stuff, like good stuff with, said, come walk with us. So I did. And we didn't end up doing the stuff that I thought we were going to do. But other than that, I've, I've refused. Like, I don't walk in them. I, they're, not, they're not for me. They're not for the community. They're they're for straight people. <laughs> like they're they're parties for straight people, and it's like okay, if you want to be an ally, like take off your rainbow shit, take off you know, stop having your pride nights, and do work to shift culture for people to create space for queer people. Do some work. Be an ally. Stand up against injustice, and and at that point. We won't even, you know, if we get to that point, we have equality and equity, then let's have the celebration. Then, then you know what I mean? We want to celebrate our community one weekend a year. Cool. But there, at that point, maybe there's not even a need, you know. But in, until we get to that point, we, we've pinkwashed it in society and then and take it to an extreme where you have these oppressive areas like men's sport culture and they you know, are, are celebrating it. And they have players saying, like, there's there's over 10 teams in the NHL with active partnerships with Chick-fil-A. There's, uh, like, baseball, football, they all have partnerships with oppressive groups. And then they refer to themselves as allies in tweets and have a rainbow night. It's like, get the fuck out of here with that. 
Like, no, we, we don't need it. I, I find it offensive. And, and going back to what I said earlier, seeking acceptance, people who love that are, are taking crumbs. They're happy with crumbs. Because in my opinion, it's a form of seeking acceptance from others as opposed to looking inwardly and saying, I love myself. I don't need acceptance from them. Well, it, it goes further too with when you talk about like the rainbow gear, right? The, the things that um, different companies are selling, you know, where are those, the funds that they make off of that? Where, where's that money going? Yep. You know, is it, is it going to an LGBT organization that's, you know, going to help the community or is, are they just pocketing that? Right. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's, you know, a bit of both, but nonetheless, they still are making money off of it. It's a money-making event. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. And the thing that kind of bothers me with just with every any social movement that happens is it seems like it, it it's this idea of like it, it's a moment, right? And speaking specifically of Pride, you think of June, right? And June being that that moment in of the moment of the year, and then it's over. It's done. Oh yeah, and it it's a movement. It's something that it needs to continue every month of the year until, like you said, until we get to that point where we have reached equality for all folks within the queer community, not just you know the white gay men. You know we have all sorts of folks that need to that are still not at that level of equality, and until we get there, that's when we can have the celebration. That's when we can party like crazy for the weekend of the year right i i lied earlier i've walked in two parades i walked in (laughs) um but i was on a bus in the second one i went to (laughs) i went to world pride in new york and i i went with the nhl in the parade again because i thought we'd be doing work together that they promised me to shift their culture and it never happened so it was two in the same year um, and, and it was because I thought that things would happen to evolve and it didn't. Um, but other than that, I have like, even then had no desire, but yeah. And, and I think it actually sets the community back. It creates further divide between those with privilege and those without. And that's, uh, a scary thing to happen because, you know, it's easy to forget. And and don't get me wrong. I think, you know, as uh, white cis gay men, we have to continue to break those ceilings to towards equality. But I think we, we, we have to do it in a way that we're uplifting the other members of our community, as opposed to, you know, looking down and say, see you later. And these nights don't do that. They, they just don't in sport. I, I, I think they have the, opposite effect and and even if they do donate some money they're still monetizing it and they're also not creating more importantly i wouldn't even care if they made money like honestly you want you like i i'm not a fan of it i think it's gross i don't think organizations should be making money off the backs of queer people but more importantly especially if you're not doing anything to uplift if you're not creating a culture where queer people can even exist in your locker rooms and in your spaces then, then you're definitely not somebody who should be making money off the community. It's, it's all performative bullshit, and, and I'm tired of it. Um, I refuse to take part in it. I get asked all the time. I say no. Um, I just, I find it gross. You know, I wish more people would critically think 
before taking part and before doing that stuff of the impact it has. And people say, well, it's, you know, a step towards progress. Actually, it's not. Um, a, a study came out, out of Australia that the impact of having Pride Nights on people and, and on sport is minimal at best. So it's not even having impact. It's not creating safer spaces for queer people in the stands. It's not creating safer spaces for queer people in the locker room. And the only way we can do that is by humanizing, engaging, and educating. And, and, and that's it. And that's all. And until people get to that point where they realize that, then it's going to continue the same way. And we're going to, you know, a lot of people are going to continue to spend money and go, wow, my team loves me. It's like, no, they don't. They love your money. And, and I'm sorry that hurts your feelings. But I know, I know the inner workings. I've been there and I've also been on this side now as an activist and an advocate where I'm in the rooms talking to them. There was the recent, the, I think it was like the first Pride Night that was like the co-sponsored one, uh, or it was the two teams together. Oh my goodness. It was Buffalo and Pittsburgh yeah. played. Um, and that was like the first time that two teams together had done a Pride Night. And it was on NBC. I was looking into the event itself and I, I'd seen that they had had the Buffalo Gay Men's Chorus, you know, they sang the national anthem and there was donations of tickets to LGBTQ plus organizations. Is progress being made? You know, are are they starting to think about, wow, we can't just slap a rainbow flag on the jersey for the warm-up and call it good? Are they starting to, you know, kind of dive a little deeper? Well, to that point, the owner of the Buffalo team donates money to politicians who are anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ+. And the Pittsburgh team has a partnership with Chick-fil-A. So you tell me. Wow. Like, uh, and, and, and the new president of the Pittsburgh team is Brian Burke, who I, I have the most, utmost respect for and, and think, you know, he, it's Brendan Burke's father that I spoke about earlier. And has done a lot for the community and works behind the scenes, has had a lot of people come to him that have struggled and has had a lot of parents come to him and, and has definitely changed many minds. But that doesn't mean that the organization, he's new there, like he just went in there, but that doesn't mean the organization isn't, you know, they're they're profiting off of that night, but they're also profiting and and overtly showing affiliations with and promoting Chick-fil-A, who is an oppressive organization. Whether they still donate money to conversion therapy or not, the fact that they have and the fact they haven't done anything to actively shift that, doesn't they, they haven't atoned for anything they've done in the past. So to me, they still hold that value system. Their core values have not changed. Again, are we accepting of crumbs? So they want to step further and had queer people sing an anthem. But are we accepting crumbs at that point? We can't even get players to use, like we have one player who uses pride tape in games. Curtis Gabriel is the only player that does that regularly. You know what I mean? And speaks out on issues. There's at least 20 players I know in the NHL who have queer siblings and aren't speaking out against oppression. Because it's a system of silence. It's, it's, it's an organization and a league that, and sport, men's sport, is that way that it's, it's shut up and play. So to me, until we get to a point where people are actively 
engaged in this and, and that they've humanized the issue for all their players. Each team has that they've then followed that up. We saw, we saw in the summer after the murder of George Floyd, that over 200 NHL players released statements, the league, the NHL and the NHLPA had nothing available to them after they, they should have had race and racism education for them immediately the NHL did, uh, or the PA rather, the NHL PA did something since at the start of this season. But there should have been an education module available right then and there. And that's all sports. Recently, we saw Kevin Durant go on a homophobic tirade in basketball. They didn't even suspend him, let alone educate him. They gave him a fine, yet they have Pride Nights. Uh, an MLS player was just suspended after making a homophobic comment to one of his teammates uh, as a joke. To the point I'm making is if we humanize these issues and and people realize the impact of this in a locker room, that we're creating unsafe spaces for queer people, then from there we can, you know, and and share experiences of those who are, who have been there and, and struggled with it. Like I'm not the only one who's played professionally in a sport who's like gone through that. And from there, educate them and, and, and be open to, you know, there uh, and, and get people in to do it that are going to be open to questions that may come across as offensive initially and different things, because, you know, there is some ignorance of not knowing. We have to get them to a point where they recognize that some questions can be offensive and different things, but just not being reactionary at all. You know what I mean? And, and recognize that the question, even if it's ignorant, is not coming from a malicious place and engaging with them. If we react and we attack, we're going to meet like this. That's my belief. That's the only way we get these cultures to shift. And that's when they should have pride nights. Sure. To be cognizant of your time and whatnot, I wanted to kind of jump to my last topic of, um, you know, you had talked a little bit earlier about the importance of representation. And I know that you do a lot of work with mentoring, with, with public speaking, with coaching, right? And, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I'm, I'm from Minnesota. So I played hockey, like, you know, yeah. growing up. And I never felt at home in the sport. I didn't know it at the time. But like, as I look back, I'm like, oh, that's why I didn't stick with it is because I didn't see myself. I didn't feel welcome. I didn't, you know, it wasn't enjoyable in that sense. I didn't have that community. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about just your work. You know, you were recently working with Toronto Maple Leaves and, you know, doing workshops and and doing these public speaking engagements with high schools. What is the importance of that representation and and showing that proud self to people who maybe are struggling? I think it's twofold. My passion is going to schools uh, because I think that's where people are arguably struggling the most. And you get um, so many, you know, different people, the, the, the athletes who, you know, when I, I, I go speak to teams and I go into locker rooms, they already, you know, like they're in the schools as well. The queer kids are in the schools. The allies are in the schools. The, the person that's just struggling with mental health stuff is, is there. And, and there, there's so many different people that, you know, need it. Like, don't get me wrong. I I love a good corporate gig. It pays the bills and, 
and everything else. But, but my passion is the schools because that's where you're going to reach the most people who probably need it and are probably afraid to talk about any of it. I think seeing somebody who says, I love being a gay man who stands up there proudly is incredible. I, I think it's needed. I think we need more of it in society for those queer people. But um, more importantly, I get to talk to you. And because of my privilege as I'm, I'm a masculine presenting white cis gay man who played professional sport. Um, I have a lot of privilege. Um, I walk down the street, people assume I'm straight. You know what I mean? Like I, I have this privilege that allows me to engage with people that might tune out who might be, you know, not fully, not anti LGBTQ plus, but don't care. And it won't resonate with them because they don't kind of see themselves or anyone like them necessarily, depending on who's there like those. And, and they tend to be the people who are more likely to be oppressive in society. So I get to talk to them and, and, and that's where it's really interesting because that's the, the most, the, some of the best conversations I have with kids that may use homophobic language, maybe bullies may, may just, you know, be oppressive in general are in those settings. And what usually comes out of it is afterwards the, the struggling queer kid reaches out on social media and that's when I get to work with them or, or I'll do breakouts with GSAs, but even still the kids that are really struggling and, and aren't out, the closeted kids aren't going to the GSA meeting. So going in there, being myself, being, you know, trying to be funny, but serious, sharing, you know, heartfelt stories and also educating people on, because I think we can all create shifts. And I think the easiest way to create shifts is shifting our language um, that we use and recognizing that we use it. And, and a lot of the time, I don't think everyone or most people are malicious by intent. I think there's poor habits that we have and we need to evolve them. And, and, you know, being able to touch on that with those people in those rooms and then engage in dialogue with them. And then afterwards, get to work with these kids that need it and try and find them help in their areas. And if need be, you know, sometimes it's just they need somebody to talk to and they'll DM with me. Sometimes it's, it's more severe and they need actual help. And, and, you know, it might mean, hey, can I talk to your parents? Then maybe have a conversation with their parents and then say, hey, we need to find, you know, your child some help in your area. And it might be situations where parents are the problem and we're trying to find help that is free and, and confidential and, 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 you know, trying to find them support in other ways. So, so it varies, but that is probably the most rewarding thing is when those people come to me. And getting to spend, like, it might be days, weeks, whatever, trying to get them additional help and support beyond just being, you know, a shoulder or an ear or sharing, you know, well, yeah, I went through that too. And here's what I did and it worked for me. It might not work for you, but you might want to try it, you know, and, and, and recognizing that and, and continuing to engage in that way with people 
especially younger people. So hopefully we have generations of queer kids who grow up less oppressed than generations before and, and less likely to be looking at word as opposed to in word and, and people dealing with their shit. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for recognizing all that and for, for your work, you know, for the passion behind working with the kids and being that source of help and um, partnership for them. So before we go, um, I've, I've kind of started this thing where I'm, I'm doing a, a queer cue, basically like creating this list to close out each episode, whether that be like, you know, a piece of art, a book, an organization, a moment in queer history for the listener to go in to look into, whether that's, you know, to spend a moment, you know, just appreciating it if it's a piece of art reading up about it, if it's, you know, a moment in queer history or, you know, reading a book on queer history, whatever that may be. I wonder if you might have anything that you've been thinking about to add to that cue. Well, I, I'm going to plug something I did uh, first. Um, I uh, There's a documentary on Amazon Prime that features myself, David Testo, and Anastasia Busis. And Anastasia was one of three Olympians to come out prior to Sochi in Russia, where it's uh, illegal to be gay. And she came out because she came out publicly because of it. That's one for sure, um, because I think her story's powerful. And David was the first men's professional soccer player to come out. And I think, you know, seeing more people in sport really is powerful. I'm I really think all gay men should read The Velvet Rage. Um I'll go back to that. And um is there anything else off the top of my head? I I think more people have to look beyond Stonewall and groups like the Mattachine Society and and um learn about act up Go read up on Larry Kramer. Go watch, even if you don't want to read, go watch the movie. Matt Bomber's naked in it. You'll enjoy it. Um, <laughs> if that's your reasoning, go for it. <laughs> I don't care whatever gets people to do it. Um, oh. You know what I mean? Like, uh, go go watch that. Go go see. Go watch and the band played on, um, or read it. If you know what I mean? Like, there, there's so many things. And, and even, you know, looking at how quickly society evolved through COVID with vaccines and whatnot and knowing what our, when it was directed at us and it was an attack on us with HIV and AIDS and how slowly they reacted, it just has to be a reminder that we can't become complacent. And if we do and we don't keep pushing for equality, we will, you know, easily be forgotten. Is we lost a whole generation as gay men of our, you know, uh, you know, who should be our our elders today, who should be the people teaching us the way, and and now we're, you know, we we lost all them, but we can't lose what they fought for. We we can't lose what they did. Uh, there's there's so many there there's there's too many to just list. I could go on. Go look at, and, and when people talk about being radical, well, there's, go look at what Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson did after Stonewall. You know what I mean? As opposed to just looking at, yeah, they threw bricks or this or that at police. No, they, they did a lot of stuff community-based afterwards. 
go look at that as well because there's so many different elements that that make people activists or advocates that that and and that build up our community that we have to look at well brock thank you i can't i can't thank you enough for taking some time uh to join me today and uh, to have this conversation um lots of things to think about (laughs) i wonder if you might share where listeners might be able to find you any upcoming projects um how to kind of keep in touch yeah so um they can find me on instagram uh, Brock McGillis 33 on Twitter at Brock underscore McGillis or my website, brockmcgillis.com. Working right now on uh, a sports-based podcast, just wrote a TV show. Um, so that's fun and working on that. Yeah, I, I just, you know, a uh, few of those things on the go and, and really just trying to continue to uplift and support and actually right now working on a not-for-profit for for queer people in sports so um yeah should be fun a little bit everything yeah (laughs) gotta keep busy right exactly (laughs) well thank you so much brock it's been a pleasure and um i'm 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 really excited to keep up with you in some of the projects that you're working on thank you so much thanks have a good one you too this has been queer by birth proud by choice with jake federowski I ask for your patience as I venture on this journey. If I have said anything that came across as offensive, uneducated, or simply incorrect, please feel free to contact me. I look forward to listening and learning. You can email me at qbbpbc at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter and or Instagram at qbbpbc. Please like and share as you are able. It is much appreciated. Last but certainly not least, I'm forever grateful for the wonderful artwork designed by my friend Kristen, whose website will be linked in the show notes.